Welcome to the Birds FM podcast. This is Scott Kesterson, and tonight you're listening to a conversation with Dr. Kevin Stillwagon. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Tempt not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war. Good evening, patriots. And this is Tuesday, August 2nd in the year of 2022. And yes, Joe Biden is still the hand puppet occupying the position of presidency. And Nancy Pelosi is trying to initiate a global nuclear war. Other than that, everything is normal. Hope you're enjoying the show. Patriots, before we begin... Make sure you're getting a good night sleep. And a good night's sleep comes from great sleep products like, here it comes, MyPillow.com. That's right, MyPillow.com. Those sheets that you are just dying to get, those Giza cotton sheets or the Parkell sheets for summer, they're just amazing. And how are you going to get those? Well, you're going to head over to MyPillow.com forward slash Bards. You're going to use your promo code Bards. That's spelled B-A-R-D-S in case you were confused because this is the Bards FM channel. But just as a clue. And you're going to get awesome sheets, awesome pillows, awesome comforters, doggy beds, you name it. Even massively great my slippers with an all-terrain four-wheel drive tread that can go deep mudding. Or so they tell me. I don't know. I haven't tried that out yet, but we'll see. Patriots, MyPillow.com is the Patriot place to shop. And at one point or another, we all need another pillow. We all need some more sheets. I just ordered more the other day because I wanted, like, I'm tired of, like, you know, washing and then not having extra sets. So that's what I did. I bought some more Giza cotton sheets. They're awesome. And they're just a great selection over there. Great prices, great value with a CEO that is not only fighting for America, but he's got Christ in his heart. And by the way, if you're ever wondering if that money goes good places, well, it does. And here's a good example, because on the 20th of August is the movie release of Selection Code, which I've been invited to attend on behalf of Bards Nation to see the the release in Missouri. All of that money that funded that film, and it's a fantastic film, and many other projects, including all of these areas of doing audits to get people back in truth of what the election is, all that has come from the great support of you patriots that have supported and bought MyPillow products because Mike Lindell's an amazing CEO. He puts the majority of his personal money into this fight, and his principle is very simple. If we don't win this, it doesn't matter anyway. And I'm kind of the same way. we got to win this, and that's it. So anyway, support the fight. Support great products for yourself. Get a good night's sleep because everyone needs one in this fight. Head over to MyPillow.com forward slash Bards, promo code Bards. And then if you're like that person that says, you know what, I just can't deal with online anymore. I need to speak to a person. Well, guess what? We've got that covered for you too. 800-975-2939, 800-975-2939. And there you will find the Patriot Pillow Counselor on standby, ready to assist you in all of your sleep needs. All of those links are below this podcast on every podcast for the last 
1,602 episodes. So if you ever get confused where to go, it's always there 1,602 times. Believe it or not, it's right there. All right, Patriots. So tonight we have a very exciting interview. I think you'll enjoy I didn't really know uh, Dr. Kevin Stillwagon until we got to talk the other day, and I'm really impressed. This is a man who's a chiropractor, and he is also an he was a pilot. When I read that in his bio, it was like, okay, so you're, an, you're a pri- private pilot. No, he was a captain for Delta, both a chiropractor, and then he became a commercial aviation pilot for Delta, a captain, which is great, and just recently retired because of the mask nonsense. So he has an amazing perspective on a lot of the things that are going on, and I think he provides a great synthesis on a lot of the challenges of this pandemic and this COVID nonsense. Now, I want to point this out because right now we're in this kind of new phase where people are getting sick and there is this product, which we've talked about, but I also want to highlight it before we get going on the show and the interview tonight called Plaxavid. Now, just take a listen to this real quick. Actually, what happened to Dr. Fauci, we're now seeing with President Biden, and it's an increasingly growing phenomenon called Paxlovid rebound. And while Pfizer says it only occurs in about 2% of cases, Mayo Clinic, Case Western Reserve, all, a lot of other places are reporting anywhere from 1% to 10% of people who take Paxlovid have this rebound phenomenon. And what we see is someone who has COVID-19 early in the stages, they take Paxlovid, a five-day course, and they start testing negative for the virus. Well, then 24, 72 hours afterwards, they start testing positive again. And so what what was really happening here? There's a few theories on what causes this. And some say the Paxlovid is what the the job is. It's supposed to suppress um, replication of the virus. But unfortunately, it seems that after that five day course, maybe the virus isn't cleared from the system and it's starting to um, it's starting to replicate again, which is why someone becomes positive again. You know, there are some concerns with Paxlovid in the sense that RNA viruses like SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19, it changes and mutates so fast that if you suppress it with Paxlovid for about five days and it is still in the system, is it going to begin to mutate to become resistant to Paxlovid? And that's a concern I have. Another concern, Ainsley, I have is I, I, I think that this medication may be being overprescribed. I mean, Pfizer's doing very well under this administration with double boosters and now Paxlovid. And the truth is, we don't actually have data showing that Paxlovid is a benefit in double boosted individuals or if it is a benefit in low risk individuals as well. So I think physicians and people who take this medication really need to be careful to discuss the risk and benefits to see if it is actually of benefit to someone taking the medication. Okay. For those that don't listen to mainstream media, that is the pack of lies people get every single day. Plaxlovid is a retrovirus medication. In other words, it's an HIV medication under a different name with another, some other products, but that's what it does. And it, it, what it's doing is it's trying to keep the person alive. People that are taking Plaxlovid have their immune systems permanently destroyed or damaged. And that's what the medication is doing right now, is trying to put a Band-Aid on a disaster. Kind of like taking a knife and cutting your femoral artery and then taking one of those little butterfly Band-Aids and putting on it and saying, is that going to be okay? The answer is no, it won't be. So this medication right now has become very popular with those in the vaxxed community that are suddenly getting recurrence of the mystery of the 
RNA massively deadly virus called COVID, SARS, whatever. It's all garbage, every bit of it. All of this is about immune systems that have been systematically destroyed and made these people permanent dependents upon the pharmaceutical industry's garbage drugs that they keep putting out. So that's a little preface as we go into tonight with a lot of very interesting discussions, which I think you'll find very interesting in synthesizing a lot of the understanding of what is going on in this field by someone who's very smart and comes from two different fields with a very interesting perspective on all things. So let me introduce you to Dr. Kevin Stillwagon. Hang on just a second. Here we go, right here. Patriots, I'm really honored today to have Dr. Kevin Stillwagon on he is a chiropractor and a pilot, and this is what's amazing is not only is he a chiropractor in profession, but he was also a pilot for Delta as a captain as a profession. So he has an amazing perspective on the state of things with this whole pandemic and the dangers of the vax, and we're just very happy to have him on. Kevin, welcome to the show. How are you today? It's my pleasure to be here, Scott. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. If you don't mind, can you just kind of give us a little background on yourself? Yeah, so uh, I, I've always wanted to be a pilot ever since I was a kid. So I started flying at the age of 15, and uh, my father was a chiropractor. And he and I actually, as a father-son project, uh, learned to fly together. It was, uh, it was quite enjoyable. We actually got our instrument ratings on the same day, our commercial ratings on the same day. And uh, he always wanted me to be a chiropractor. So I, I did that, and I practiced full-time for about seven years. But my Real passion was aviation, and so I kind of gravitated towards uh, the airlines, and I became an airline pilot in 1987, and uh, I was just recently retired from Delta Airlines as a captain after 33 years of airline experience and 21 years as a captain flying passengers safely all over the world. And so I was actually forced to retire because I didn't wear the mask. I, uh, I refused to wear that mask as part of my uniform. And uh, so I, I drew my line in the sand way early. And, uh, and I, 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 uh, I got out of aviation because of that reason. So one of the things we've noticed in this whole pandemic nightmare, and I, at least this, it's something I've noted on the show a number of times, is the number of chiropractors that have been so awake to the threat of this versus medical MDs. Can you talk a little bit about that in perspective to your training and your perspective towards health and curative process for the human body? Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing what, what happens. Um, we're, we're all doctors. We, we have the, the word doctor in front of our name, which means we all study the same things in college. We study anatomy. We study physiology. Uh, we take all of the organs and look at them, their innervation, their blood supplies, what can go wrong with these organs, what kind of disease processes can happen to these organs. And so the allopathic uh, method of, of treating illness is, uh, is a pill for an ill. They're, they're only treating the symptoms. And with uh, chiropractors and also some other doctors that would fall into uh, natural medicine, which would be homeopathy, nature of paths, uh, acupuncturists, we're all looking deeper than the symptom. We're trying to find the actual cause of the problem and, and treating that 
trying to rectify the problem that way instead of just treating the symptoms. So that's where the, uh, that's where the difference comes in. And so the, the problem, especially with uh, allopathic medicine and, and this word called vaccine, <laughs> is the fact that they all believe that it's safe and effective. And uh, they've never actually investigated what's really going on. And what's nice to see right now, Scott, is that doctors all over the world now are waking up. Important doctors, heavy hitter doctors like Dr. Robert Malone, Peter McCullough, and uh, Pierre Corey, and Ryan Cole. And I know all of these men personally and have sat down and talked to them about the philosophy of uh, why people get vaccines and why they think they're helpful for the body. And they're starting to realize now that they're actually not helpful. They're hurtful. And uh, the whole philosophy be behind a product called a vaccine is that it's going to create an antibody that's inside of your body. That's, that's the problem, Scott. Those antibodies that they create, they're always inside of your body. So they cannot stop a virus from getting from the outside to the inside. They can't do that. They can only react to the virus once it gets inside of you. So it's only there to react to an infection. It can never prevent an infection and never stop the spread of infection. And none of these shots called vaccines were ever designed to do that. It's impossible for them to do that. And so Deborah Burks knew that. She just wrote a book. What was the name of that thing? Silence Invasion. She admitted in this book that she knew at the start that this shot that they were calling a vaccine could not, in fact, prevent infection and could not, in fact, stop the spread of infection. Why did she not make that clear to the American public that she knew that? And Fauci knew it, too. So these people are all bought and paid for, Scott, by the pharmaceutical industry because they want that mantra out there that this vaccine is safe, it's effective, it will protect you. And it does none of that. It's dangerous. It can hurt you bad. This deals with some new technologies, too, that we haven't seen. And yeah. I'd like you to kind of put that in context because you published a book in 1984. I did which was way ahead of its time in that sense, because you were pushing against vaccines then. Is that correct? I was. I was talking about the dangers of vaccines and also the dangers of losing your medical freedom. And at that time, uh, in most states, uh, you could get what's called a religious exemption so that you didn't have to have your child get vaccines to go through uh, the public school system. But slowly over time, some of that started getting eroded. And in fact, in some of these states like California and New York and West Virginia, the population actually voted to eliminate the medical freedom concept, which is very, very dangerous, very dangerous. We, we cannot allow these, these kinds of things to happen. So getting back to, you know, the idea of why this particular shot cannot even call, be called a vaccine is because by definition, a vaccine is supposed to have something in it, Scott, that would immediately start your body making antibodies against a foreign protein. 
So that's what's in these traditional shots called vaccine. They put the virus in it or parts of the virus in the vaccine, the shot called the vaccine, and they shoot that into you. And then your body's reaction to that is to make an antibody. But again, as I've mentioned, those antibodies are always on the inside of you. They cannot stop, they, they cannot stop a virus from getting from the outside to the inside. And that protection comes from something completely different that doesn't even involve antibodies. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But the reason why this particular technology cannot be called a vaccine is it doesn't contain viruses or any parts of viruses or any foreign proteins at all. It contains a message to make a protein. That's what this shot does. So they're injecting something into you to make a protein. That is a biological action other than creating antibodies immediately. So it should be classified as a drug and it should be treated as a drug and it should fall under FDA rules and regulations. But it's not because they got away with calling it a vaccine. So let's talk a little bit about this technology, why it's so dangerous. The shots that they're using right now mainly the Pfizer and Moderna shots contain what are called lipid nanoparticles. Lipid nanoparticles are encapsulated with normal body fats, two of them. One of them is called cholesterol. And the other has a real fancy and fun name to say. It's disterophosphatidylcholine, but they're normal body fats. So when this stuff is injected into your body, your body does not look at it as a foreign invader. It looks at it as self. It just lets this stuff go everywhere and anywhere. And it crosses the blood brain barrier and can get into your brain. And so the real danger is since it's not treated as a foreign invader and it's made of the same stuff that all of your cells are made from, all of your cellular membranes, any cell that this stuff rubs up against, it will actually merge with that cell membrane and allow the contents of the lipid nanoparticle to dump right into those cells. And what's in those lipid nanoparticles? It's messenger RNA. It is the message to make the spike protein. And we found out now that the spike protein is actually the most dangerous part of this virus. It's toxic. It can stick to the linings of your blood vessels and start causing blood clotting issues, all sorts of problems going on here. But here's, here's the tricky part that most people don't think about. Those lipid nanoparticles can get into any and all cells of your body, but viruses can't do that, Scott. Viruses have to attach to a specialized receptor in order for them to get inside of cells of your body. Well, these viruses, they're, they're targeting cells of your body. Not every cell will accept the viruses, but all cells of your body will accept these lipid nanoparticles. That's dangerous because what we've got now is we've got cells of your body that are making spike proteins that should never be permitted to do that, especially brain cells. Now, the problem with the spike protein that this thing is creating is it acts like a prion. 
And a prion is a protein that when it comes in contact with other proteins in the body, it can actually change the shape of those proteins. And I will tell you that in the protein world, shape is everything because the shape of a protein determines its function. So now what are we doing? We're injecting something that not only makes a dangerous toxic protein, but this protein has the ability to change other proteins in your body, which is what and who you are. And what did Klaus Schwab say about the Great Reset and everything that's going on with the Great Reset? He said, it will change who you are. And that's exactly what's happening here, Scott. Is this where we would say at that point, just to get clarity, is that where you would say is what we're defining as DNA modification or genetic modification? That's something different. Uh, that goes that goes a little deeper. And that has to do with what's called uh, reverse transcription of, of what's going on in the cell when that messenger RNA is making the protein. So we're going to go a little deep into the weeds here, but you need to understand that you're not made of DNA. You're made of proteins mainly. And the message to make those proteins is in your DNA. So the DNA is in the nucleus of the cell. And when your body needs to make proteins, what happens is that DNA, which is a double helix structure, splits in half into a, a single uh, strand. And then messenger RNA breaks off from that single strand. And the messenger RNA leaves the nucleus of the cell and it goes out into the cytoplasm. And that's where it joins up with amino acids to actually make proteins. So the message to make the protein is actually in your DNA. That's where all proteins come from is the message to make them. So the danger here is, Scott, that there is a, an enzyme that's in your cells called reverse transcriptase. And it can actually take segments of that messenger RNA and reverse transcribe it back into DNA. And that can be inserted and integrated with your DNA. Now, when that happens, that will affect the DNA of that particular cell line every time that cell splits, okay? So it just affects certain cell lines. But the real danger, Scott, is that if it affects either sperm cells or egg cells, and we know that it can do that, this has been shown in the laboratory, this can happen. That means that the new human created by the joining of that sperm and egg will have that new DNA message to make proteins in every single cell of their body. Now, what's the danger here? Well, the danger here, Scott, is that we've been injecting stuff into people to make proteins for decades. And it comes in the form of routine childhood immunizations and flu shots. Now I know that it's not the mRNA technology that we're doing right now, 
with this shot. But still, that genetic information that's in those shots can get integrated into DNA. And when it affects sperm and egg cells, again, that can affect and will be in every cell of the new human's body. Here's the scary part, Scott. How many people have submitted their DNA for uh, testing to find out their heritage? How many people do you think have done that? We know it's millions. And unfortunately, those companies have sold that information to China. And so China is building literally genomic information on every single human on the planet. And so we've already determined that there are genetic sequences that are in individuals right now. There's, there's a laboratory test that was done on this. This is a peer-reviewed literature article. It's in the literature where they have discovered nine genomic sequences that are present in people, even apparently healthy people, that when they have these genomic sequences in them, they get severe COVID symptoms, even if they're apparently healthy. So the question is, how did those genomic sequences get in there? I'm saying that they may likely have gotten in there based on these routine immunization procedures that we've been doing to our children, to our adult population with flu shots for decades. So here's the problem. If somebody that's nefarious, somebody over in China, looks at all this genomic information and figures out, well, everybody has this type of genomic sequence in them. So let's make a virus. And believe me, Scott, they do this. Fauci's been doing it for decades. You can make viruses. They are not living things. They have no intelligence, no ability to multiply by themselves, no desire to attack you. They're just hunks of genetic information. That's all they are. They can be constructed in the laboratory. So what if somebody who's nefarious looks at all of this genetic information and says, okay, most of the human population has this type of genomic information in them. So we're going to construct a virus that has that genomic sequence in it as well. And then we're going to convince everybody to go ahead and inject this stuff into their body. What that could do, Scott, is create a problem where people that would normally be able to resist that type of genomic information won't be able to do it anymore because once it's injected into their body, their body will treat it as self, not an invader. And that could cause devastating problems. That, that could actually lead to deaths of billions of people. And Bill Gates is having wet dreams over that scenario because apparently he thinks there's way too many people on the planet Earth. So these are some of the nefarious things that could be happening that people don't think can happen, but it's possible. No, I agree. We're, we're at a cusp of technology that most people don't even understand exists and it's well-developed. So let's talk a little bit about 
this why some are affected and why some are not. This is one of the interesting things about this shot when we get into the injection because my premise is pretty much that the COVID was, it had an elevated spike protein of a flu virus essentially. Yeah. Got people a little more sick. And then the real bioweapon was what they injected in people. Right. What do you feel is the reason that some are being affected by this and some are not? There's, there's a lot of different reasons. Um, the main reason is you, you literally cannot control the strengths of these doses. And Paul Offit, who was, uh, you know, responsible for developing several types of vaccines over, over the years, has said that this particular shot can contain anywhere from 10 billion to 100 billion active particles in it, depending upon how it was mixed. Have you ever looked at how this stuff is supposed to be mixed before they inject it into a person, Scott? I mean, the rules are pretty intense. There are strict rules on temperature storage for these things. And then when the technician mixes it, uh, they're supposed to uh, tilt the vial 10 times, not shake it. And then they're supposed to look at the vial to make sure it looks a certain way before they inject it into your body. And the reason they're doing that is because the lipid nanoparticles by nature will tend to stick together. So they put polyethylene glycol in the mix that keeps the lipid nanoparticles separated so that they do not stick together. And that's why the temperature is so strictly controlled. They're trying to prevent this coagulation from happening before it's injected into your body. So the problem we've had, Scott, is that we had literally millions of people lined up in church parking lots all over America waiting for their sacrament of vaccination with their arms hanging out the window. And they got injected with coagulating goo by poorly trained technicians. Now, when you inject something that's already coagulating into your body and it gets into a vein or a capillary bed, it can create an embolism that can result in a deadly stroke or a heart attack very quickly. Did you know that Almost half of the deaths reported from this shot happened within the first two days, within 48 hours, and 80% of them happened within a week. Why is this not known, Scott? Because the CDC is going to say, well, those people weren't vaccinated because they say you have to wait two weeks after, after you've been injected for antibodies to show up. So they will say that these people that got injected two days ago and killed over, they're going to list those people as being unvaccinated. See the problem here? Oh, yeah. So not only can you be injected with coagulating goo, but you can be injected with a product that has a tenfold chance of being either strong or weak. So the more particles that are injected into you, the greater your chances are of having an adverse reaction. You also got to think about where is the tip of that needle, be, you know, when they push the plunger. If that needle is sitting in a vein or a capillary bed, those particles are going to rapidly spread all over your body quite quickly. Those people are going to get adverse reactions. The people where the 
the stuff gets injected into uh, adipose or fat tissue, for example, it doesn't spread around quite as quickly. So those people will not have uh, a severe adverse reaction that happens quickly. Another reason that uh, some people get adverse reactions and others do not uh, has to do with uh, the, uh, the pH of your cells. Uh, the more acidic the cell is, the greater the chances are that it's going to make more spike proteins. And so people that have certain diets, for example, that are high in polyphenols, uh, they're going to have a cellular acidity that's different than other people. So they won't make uh, nearly as many spike proteins as others. Here's another reason. And I talked to Robert Malone in person about this one. Remember I said they put polyethylene glycol around those lipid nanoparticles to keep them from sticking together? Well, your body can actually have antibodies against polyethylene glycol. So there's a chance that when this stuff is injected into people that have antibodies against polyethylene glycol, it will actually block some of those lipid nanoparticles from ever delivering the message. Does that make sense? It inactivates some of those lipid nanoparticles. The same thing can happen with the Johnson & Johnson shot, J&J shot, that uses an adenovirus. It's a deactivated adenovirus as the vector to deliver the messenger RNA to the cells. And so if you've come in contact with the adenovirus recently and you have uh, strong antibody titers against that adenovirus, when this J&J &J shot is injected, those antibodies block it. So the adenovirus never gets to deliver the message. And that's why the, when they did the trial for the J&J &J shot, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but it's, its effectiveness, even by their numbers, its effectiveness was 30% lower than the effectiveness that was reported for the Pfizer and Moderna shots. 30% lower, Scott, right in the trials. So my question is, why? how did this thing even get approved? Wouldn't you want the one that supposedly had the best efficacy? This just goes to show you that, that, that this whole thing is not about your health. It's about the pharmaceutical industry getting stuff uh, out there and in, into people's bodies and having the government pay for it and making them rich. That's what it's all about. You face this on not just as a doctor in looking at the analysis, which is and, and then looking at consequences, but then you've faced this now as a pilot where you are being forced or the attempt was to force you to comply to policies from the mask to the injection. And that also gives you a very interesting voice in with the aviation community. Yeah. Especially as a captain, former captain from Delta. What can you kind of give some insight into that nightmare? Because this one's, this is a big one. This is public safety beyond just the individual health. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, one of, here's, here's the problem with, with uh, the adverse reactions to the shot, particularly myocarditis. There are pilots that actually are experiencing myocarditis right now, and they have no idea that they're, that they're having this problem. And that's because it can be subclinical, no, no symptoms whatsoever. First, let's talk about 
where the myocarditis comes from. Now, this gets a little bit technical, but, but what I'm about to tell you is, is absolutely 100% accurate. If you'll notice, and it's in the CDC, uh, the CDC data, that myocarditis is showing up after the second shot, not the first shot. And the reason that's happening is from what's called the activation of the complement cascade. Now, the complement system of your immune system is the heavy artillery, and it, it's only called out when there's something seriously wrong with your immune system. And it's usually held out for localized infections that the body is having a really tough time getting rid of. So the complement system is 15 quintillion uh, proteins of 30 different varieties that are circulating in your bodily fluids all the time. And when the complement system gets activated, Scott, it's, it's literally like taking one match, lighting that match, and throwing it into an entire box of matches. It takes off like crazy. And what it does is it attracts numerous white blood cells to all cells of your body that are either making these spike proteins or have spike proteins attached. And it's highly inflammatory and it will destroy tissue. It causes significant tissue damage. And when this happens in the heart, that's called myocarditis. Now, why is it happening after the second shot? Here's what's going on, Scott. When you get that first shot, it's creating the spike protein. And that protein is circulating in your blood and in your lymph. And your body's normal reaction to that is to make an antibody to block that protein. And it certainly does do that. So now, these antibodies are going to wane or decrease over time. And this is normal. If we kept every antibody for every foreign protein that we ever came in contact with, our blood would be sludge. It'd be so thick, we wouldn't even be able to pump it. So what's important about these antibodies is not the antibody titer, which is the count of the numbers of antibodies, which is what Fauci is so wound up about. That's not what's important. What's important is the memory to remake those antibodies when they're needed. So here's Fauci running around saying, oh, look, see, your, your antibody levels have dropped. So you've got to go get a booster shot now. You've got to boost those antibody levels back up. Here's the danger. When you go get that booster shot, What's it going to do? It's going to make billions more spike proteins. And when your immune system sees that, it says, wait a second. I already dealt with this spike protein. I made antibodies against that spike protein. And I have the memory to rapidly remake antibodies against that spike protein to keep them from showing up in these numbers. So there's billions of them. Where are they coming from? This is not normal. Something is seriously wrong here. So I'm going to turn on that heavy artillery. I'm gonna turn on that complement cascade and get rid of these spike proteins immediately. That's why it's happening. 
And again, when it happens in the heart, it's called myocarditis. Now, here's the problem with myocarditis. It's known that 20% of people that develop myocarditis will die within two years. And half of them could die within five years. And they are going to die, Scott, because when that heart is put under stress, it could fail. Now, normally when people have a heart problem, it's, it's a plumbing problem, right? You get constriction of your blood vessels that supply the heart, or you get some blockage in those vessels, and that creates what's called angina pain. People get chest pains or pains in their arm, and, and they go to the cardiologist and try to figure out what's going on. And they normally find that it's a blockage problem, but that's not what myocarditis is. Myocarditis is actually scar tissue that has built up in the muscles of the heart. And this will disrupt the normal uh, flow of electrical energy through the heart. It keeps your heart pumping in unison. It keeps it from having what are called arrhythmias or fibrillations. And when you have arrhythmias or fibrillations in your heart, sometimes you don't even know it. You might maybe feel a little flutter in your chest, but it's not really all that painful or concerning, but it's there nonetheless. But when the heart gets under stress, like what we're seeing on soccer fields and tennis courts and basketball courts with Pro athletes just keeling over, dying with heart failure. That's what's happening. They had myocarditis and they didn't know it. And so I'm telling everyone that got this shot, and especially if your kids got this shot, you need to go out and have your troponin levels checked because the troponin level in your blood will tell you if, you, if you've had uh, muscle damage in your heart or not. And if that troponin level is elevated, do not exercise. Do not let your child enter aggressive sports in school because it could be deadly to them. And that's what we're seeing happen on these fields right now, Scott. That's why they're dropping over. Now, if this happens to a pilot at a bad time, that could be disastrous as well. We just had an incident several weeks ago. His name was, uh, uh, what was his name? Doc, uh, Captain Robert Snow. Captain Bob Snow landed an Airbus in the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. He's an Airbus captain. That's, a, that's an airplane that I'm familiar with because that's what I retired off of, the Delta Airlines. Literally six minutes after he landed the aircraft and got to the gate, he was packing his bags, and he had a cardiac event, complete cardiac failure, right in the, right in the cockpit, passed out cold was dragged out onto the jetway. Luckily, emergency medical equipment was nearby. and They were able to uh, electrify his heart and get it going again. And he ended up in the hospital and now he's lost his medical license and he'll probably never fly again. And so the problem with, you know, a pilot having an emergency like that at a bad time could be a disaster. There are critical phases of flight, Scott. It's like uh, the, the last few seconds uh, during a landing, you know, from a couple hundred feet above the ground until the wheels are on the runway. And also when you're taking off, those are critical phases of flight. If something goes wrong there, it could, 
it could really be disastrous. The aircraft could leave the runway, for example, and hit other aircraft. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. In an Airbus, it, it's what's called a fly-by-wire airplane, okay? Have you ever flown a flight simulator, a desktop flight simulator with a joystick? That's what an Airbus is like. Uh, there's no yoke in front of the pilot. And so if the captain, for example, is the flying pilot, the, the first officer cannot see the control inputs that the captain is making. There's no way that they can see that because it's over on the side of the captain. It's completely out of view. And so if, if the captain is having some kind of a, an event that's, that's causing a spasm in their arm, for example, and they're uh, starting to point that aircraft in the wrong direction, for example, uh, they're putting it into a left bank and the aircraft is just uh, you know, a few feet above the runway. If the first officer is recognizing this and wants the aircraft to go in the opposite direction, that pilot will then input the opposite uh, control input. But the problem is with a fly-by-wire aircraft, those control inputs are blended. So if the pilot is moving the control full left and the first officer is moving the control full right, they're blended and, and nothing will happen. The aircraft will continue on the current, current trajectory. So the way you have to take over is to push a red button that's on that side stick controller and hold it in. And that will give you full control of the aircraft. So the problem is, Scott, it's going to take the pilot that's not flying the aircraft a certain amount of time to recognize that they've got to take over control of the aircraft now by pushing in the button and holding it and getting the aircraft safely on the ground. So if this happens at a bad time, Scott, there, there could be a, a, a disaster. Now, what really concerns me also is uh, the possibility of both pilots being incapacitated at the same time. Now, I'm not talking about a complete cardiac event where both pilots are passed out cold. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about something different. It's called pilot incapacitation. It's where the pilot gets distracted by something so severely that they can no longer perform their job safely. So let's say the, the captain, for example, is having some kind of a, a cardiac event and they're starting to have some chest pains and that's severely distracting them. And the first officer is maybe having a cerebrovascular event that's maybe not real severe. They call these uh, what are called transient ischemic attacks, where you start to have a little brain fog and you, you can't concentrate properly, or maybe it affects your vision in a certain way where you lose your peripheral vision, or maybe it affects your hearing in a certain way and you're not able to uh, communicate with air traffic control appropriately. So if this is happening to both pilots at the same time, at a bad time, and you throw on top of that uh, bad weather, maybe a mechanical issue with the aircraft, and crowded skies, it could be headed for a disaster. So I'm calling for the FAA to immediately put an end to uh, putting these shots in the pilots. We already know that it's causing myocarditis issue, blood clotting issues. Just stop it right now. Just come out and make a statement that we made a mistake. 
Uh, we should not be allowing this stuff to go into pilots, so we're going to stop it right now. But not only that, every pilot should be tested that got this shot because they could be having some issues going on that they don't even know about. So the FAA can react to things in different ways. Uh, they're supposed to protect the safety of the flying public. And so usually what happens, Scott, is that there's, there's a, a major uh, you know, crash that happens. For example, in 1985, there was an L-1011 that was coming in to approach the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, and it ran into wind shear. And it slammed that aircraft into the ground about a mile short of the runway, and almost 200 people died. So the FAA's reaction to that was, okay, we got to do something about that. Number one, we're going to retrain all pilots to be able to recognize wind shear. And they did that. And then they said, well, we got to put wind, wind detection equipment around all major airports. And they did that. And then they said, well, we got to put wind shear detection equipment on the aircraft itself. So now we've retrained all the pilots and we've got wind shear detection equipment on planes and on the ground. And that worked. We haven't had a major incident with wind shear ever since that happened. So that's what's called a reactionary approach. I don't want to see the FAA have to do a reactionary approach to this problem that we have right now. They have to do a preventive approach. So a preventive approach with the FAA is something like what they already have in place for aircraft. It's called an airworthiness directive. Let's say that a mechanic is doing routine inspections and all of a sudden he sees a bushing on an aircraft that's wearing out prematurely. So he notifies the supervisor and the supervisor notice, uh, notifies the FAA. And the FAA says, all right, we're going to put out an airworthiness directive. We're not going to immediately ground that fleet, but we are going to demand that every single aircraft in that fleet be inspected to see if that bushing is wearing out. And we're gonna put a time limit on that. And if we see a, a safety problem there, then we're just gonna replace all of those bushings. So that's how they prevent problems from happening. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So they should, they should do the same thing now with the personnel because it's become clear that we have a medical issue that's happening right now. And if you don't look for it, you're not gonna find it especially with pilots, because they're not going to come forward and admit that they're having these issues, because that's going to put them under scrutiny immediately. It could put their licenses and their career on the line. They don't want to do that. So we've got to come up with some kind of an amnesty program so that when this testing is, is rolled out and we start finding these issues with pilots, that they don't, they don't lose their jobs. They don't lose their pay because they were coerced in doing this, Scott. A lot of these pilots didn't want to have that shot. And Captain Bob Snow was one of them. He adamantly did not want to get this shot, but he was told by his supervisors that you will get this shot or you will be fired. That's illegal. It really sounds like what we have here, anything you describe is just kind of a sleeper disaster sitting here underneath the, underneath the view. Yeah. Because this, the evolution of the myocarditis is not simple. It takes years to evolve. So two years, five years, I think there's even a, like a 10-year point, isn't there, somewhere out there? Yeah, it, it's 
the word they use is insidious. It, it can creep up on you. And uh, again, if, if you don't look for these things, you're not going to find them. And we just got to try to prevent impending disaster if we possibly can. So what's the solution here in the sense that there's, there's a, there's a time frame to train a pilot, which is not insignificant to get that sort of experience. Right. And if you're taking pilots offline, I mean, they've created, and this whole process has created a transportation disaster essentially for the country. Yeah, it has. So <clears throat> what happened, uh, Scott, was the, the uh, air, airline managements overreacted to this problem. Uh, they were trying to stop financial bleeding. So they just offered early retirement packages to pilots like me, but they offered way too many early retirement packages and they were attractive and a lot of pilots took those. So that significantly depleted their workforce and they parked aircraft out in the desert and they, you know, got amnesty for making payments on their leases or whatever, but that's their job. They're trying to stop the financial bleeding. But they let too many pilots go. And so now that the, uh, the traveling, traveling public has come back a lot faster than they ever thought it would happen, what they do is they incentivize pilots uh, to come to work on their days off. They pay them a lot of extra money to do this. Well, that's fine, but the FAA has very strict rules on how many hours a pilot can fly in a calendar month and in a calendar year. And so what happens is just about every month, towards the end of the month, these pilots are running up against that brick wall. And basically, they've just run out of pilots to fill the schedule. And that's why you'll see in airports, uh, towards the end of the month, you'll see a, a board just be full of cancellations. And I'll blame it on weather. But that's not the problem. It's, it's a staffing problem that they've, they've created themselves. And you compound that. On top of that, you compound this problem of uh, adverse reactions that some pilots are having and they're calling in sick. That's a problem. Here's another problem, Scott. They, some of these airlines are still requiring their employees to do uh, weekly testing or even randomized testing for, quote, COVID. And they're, they're shoving a stick up their nose and they're testing it to see if there's any viral DNA in there. And if there is, and they say, oh, well, now you're a positive case and you got to go into quarantine. This is stupid. Just because you find uh, genetic information for a virus in, the, in your snot doesn't mean anything. You know, when you think about it, we all, we all breathe about 100 million various viruses every single day, whether you're wearing a mask or not. And they get trapped in your mucus naturally. So if you look for these things there, you will find them there. And that does not necessarily mean that you are infected or even will be. And this should be clear to everyone, because if you look at the PCR tests, how many that were done, it was hundreds of millions of these tests that were done. And there were hundreds of millions of positive tests. And many of those people never, ever got sick, never developed symptom one. But the problem is they're, they're quarantining these people and they're convincing them that, oh, you're a, you're a positive case. You have COVID. You have to go quarantine now. I'm sure you know somebody that that's happened to, Scott, that was sent home in quarantine and they never, they never got sick. So, 
you know, how are businesses going to be able to sustain themselves under those types of conditions? How effective have you been when you talk to pilots as a pilot with the medical background you have? How effective are you in reaching that group and getting them to be aware not only of what's happened to them, but the future risks that they face? Well, I've been I've been pretty successful at it because I go out and speak at uh, at local rallies. I do it on the local level to small groups, and I continue to do that. And I've spoken out on these very issues at uh, uh, community council meetings and school board meetings. I'm just trying to make people aware. And so, you and I talked about this a little bit before we even. Uh, cranked up the show. And, th- and that is the fact that if there's going to be change, it's got to come from within and it's got to come from the grassroots. It's got to be from the bottom up. There's nothing going to come from the top down to fix this problem, Scott. It's got to come from the people waking up enough people. You know, what I'm trying to convince people is that, look, we, we're in a war right now. It's a war against our freedom. And it doesn't matter if you've had the shot or not, or how you feel about the shot, whether you think it's a good idea or not. We're way beyond that. People have got to wake up and realize that this is a this is a threat against your freedom as an individual. And they're trying to take that away from you. We got to stop that. So when you go to a war like this, you got to have a weapon and the weapon is going to be peaceful noncompliance. We have to have the conviction and the courage to stand up and say no. Next time they try to force those masks on us, we say no, we're not going to wear those masks. No, you're not going to tell us that we have to close our business. No, you're not going to send me home when I'm not sick. You're not going to tell me I can't go to church. You're not going to tell me I can't go visit a loved one. You're not going to tell me I have to shove a stick up my nose to prove I have or don't have something stuck in my snot, which means absolutely nothing. And you're definitely not going to tell me I have to put something into my body against my will for me to keep my job. That's all coming to an end right now. So that's peaceful noncompliance. And the next thing you have to have is armor. And I believe that that armor is going to be the truth and knowledge on how your immune system actually works and can prevent you from becoming infected by anything, even these man-made bioweapons, which everybody is so frightened of. There's no need to fear. Your body has the built-in mechanism to prevent those things from getting inside of you in the first place. It's called your innate immune system. So the problem is, Scott, what they're, what they're doing is they're actually convincing people to bypass that beautifully designed innate immune system and injecting something directly inside of you that could actually be a bioweapon itself. We have to put an end to this nonsense, and that's done by education. And so that's what I do. I go out and I try to educate people. I do it in public. I do it in you know, small meeting groups. And I've also created a rumble channel where I have some educational videos on how your immune system actually works. And when people actually sit down and watch it, and it takes a while, it's about an hour. It's, it's almost like immunology 101, 
But when you're done, you'll know more than a lot of doctors out there. Believe me, because they don't understand it either. Your immune system is a highly complicated thing. It's more complicated than the, than the brain and the nervous system. There's so much going on there. But I've tried to boil it down into a simple language, easy to understand. And it's basically a philosophy of, uh, you know, how, how do things get inside of you and how do, how do you protect that from happening? Well, you've done an amazing job here today of taking some really complex topics, and they are and putting them into a, a real clear framework. And I, I appreciate that because we've had a lot of guests on and, and these are very complex topics. They are. What I kind of like to ask in the final question here is just, is you had talked early in the show about how the viruses get in us, yeah. but that that wasn't the way to prevent. Can you kind of talk about that approach then that you take both in the health and the wellness of your body and what you recommend to others? Yeah, so you have to build up what's called the, the innate immune system, uh, which is what prevents you from becoming infected in the first place. And it's uh, based on having a good, uh, strong mucosal barrier that separates the outside of you from the inside of you. And also you have to have uh, a good uh, cellular, uh, it, it's called the, the sentinel cells of your, of your innate immune system. This gets a little bit technical, but there are three of them involved. There are natural killer cells, uh, dendritic cells, and activated T cells. And in order for you to keep those cells healthy, you have to do certain things. Number one, you've got to have uh, proper levels of vitamin D in your body. Now, vitamin D isn't actually a vitamin. It's a hormone that is required by virtually all cells in your body. Just about every cell in your body has a receptor for, for vitamin D to get in. So have your vitamin D levels checked. And if it's below the optimal range, then uh, take supplements to help get that vitamin D back up there and get out into the sunshine also to build up that natural vitamin D. Another one is vitamin C. And another uh, thing that you should consider having is uh, zinc. Adequate amounts of zinc that are in your cells can actually uh, stop or impede viral replication. And so zinc is important, but you've got to get a way to get the zinc in there. And that's by what's called a zinc ionophore. And the best one is something called quercetin, which you can still buy in health food stores. You've also got to exercise. You got to try to get your heart rate up almost every day if you can. And that's because in order for your body to remain healthy, it's got to have fresh, oxygenated, and nutrient-filled blood getting to all cells of the body. And you also have to have a way to get the toxins out of those cells. And that's done by uh, aerobic exercise, getting those blood vessels dilated and getting that blood and lymph circulating. So the problem is in America, we become way too sedentary. We don't, we don't do that anymore. Which is, uh, which is a major problem. Now, I'm 65 years old. I can still run 10 miles. I'm a, I'm a big advocate of, of uh, exercise. Now, another thing is uh, you have to have good nutrition. And this is so critical because we've got a problem right now in America with glyphosate poisoning. Glyphosate has gotten into our water supply, and it's in a lot of our foods right now. 
And the problem with glyphosate is it can actually break down what's called the tight junction, which is part of that mucosal barrier that I talked about. It can actually break that down and weaken it. That's not good. Now, the reason they use glyphosate, Scott, is because they want to be able to spray this stuff on crops so that it kills all the weeds around the crops, but it doesn't affect the crop itself. So what they do is they genetically modify crop so that it will resist the glyphosate. But in order to do that, this genetic modification interrupts what's called the shikimate pathway in these plants. And that's important because the shikimate pathway in these plants is what makes what's called essential amino acids. Remember a while back, I talked about how you're how you're not made of DNA, you're made of proteins. And the information to make those proteins is in your DNA. And the proteins are made from amino acids. Well, there are three essential amino acids. And they're called essential because our body cannot make those amino acids. We have to get them in our diet. So if we're eating foods that are genetically modified, they don't have those essential amino acids in them. And so we've got a problem in America right now that's called malnutrition. And I mean, you can look at somebody walking down the street and say, well, they look perfectly healthy to me, but they, if they're eating a lot of genetically modified foods, they are malnourished because they are not getting those essential amino, amino acids to build the proteins that their body needs to function normally and to stay healthy. And so what we have to do, Scott, I know this is hard and it's expensive, but we have to do it. We've got to eat as much organic foods as we possibly can. Organic foods. So support your local farmer. Get out to those uh, farmer's markets that are in small communities, even larger communities. They have farmer's markets. It's best to eat those types of foods and stay away from all of these foods that are genetically modified. There's a little caveat here I got to talk about. This gets a little confusing, but products like wheat, they're always uh, non-GMO. And people are saying, oh, I got to I gotta get the non-GMO wheat. And that'll be good for me. No, because those foods are actually tainted with glyphosate. They want those foods to be affected by glyphosate because it desiccates those crops. In other words, it's easier for the farmer to reap those crops when they're all desiccated at the same time. And that desiccation is done by glyphosate. That's a dangerous thing. So try to eat as much organic food as you possibly can. Don't necessarily target on that little non-GMO label. Those are great words. Dr. Stewagen, where can people find your work and support you? I've got a few things going right now. I have the Rumble uh, channel that I talked about. So you just go to rumble.com forward slash Kevin Stillwagon. There are some educational videos on your immune system and how it actually works. And I've also started a Substack. So it's uh, drkevinstillwagon.substack.com. And I've put some research on there about uh, pilot deaths. And what I've discovered with uh, an escalation of pilots dying younger 
and I've published my thoughts on why that is happening, which gets into the physiology of, or the pathophysiology of what this shot can do to the human body. And I've also begun to republish the book that we talked about earlier that I wrote back in 1984. It's called The Silent Killers. And so I'm republishing that book totally free on Substack. It's all free, uh, chapter by chapter. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Stowen, we always close with a prayer. If it's okay with you, we'll do a prayer. Yeah, that'd be great. Father, we want to thank you today for just another great meeting and encounter with a great mind, Dr. Stillwagon, and the work that he's doing to continue to open people's eyes to truth and to keep them fearless in this fight. In this time of deception and so much confusion, it's difficult to, for many people to find the way, and it's great voices like this that guide us and continue to keep eyes forward, always towards the truth and the love in you. And we say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, Scott. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Yeah, well, thank you very much. This is a great interview, and I really want to say this. We've had a lot of people on and a lot of knowledge, and we're kind of coming to a point now when there is so much knowledge out there, it's hard to synthesize it. And I just want to say thank you and encourage you to continue to keep it in in this format you're doing because it really was a very digestible information that you dropped here today. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. I hope you have a very blessed day, and we'll keep in touch and look forward to having you back on. Absolutely, Scott. I look forward to it as well. Thank you. Okay, God bless. Have a great day. Bye-bye now. All right, bye. Well, Patriots, that was Dr. Kevin Stillwagon, who has proven to be quite a mind in all of this. I was very impressed with the ability to synthesize some very complex issues in, in a format that we can follow steadily, especially with the amount of information that we've accumulated over the last couple of years. I think some of the key takeaways as we get towards the end of this interview and just reinforcing these protocols, and it's so, so important right now. It's one thing to be keeping up on your supplements, and that's, inc- that's important, and the sort of things that are being recommended by many doctors, vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, copper, quercetin, which helps digest that into the cell level. Um, and there's other supplements people want to take, and that's great. And it's also... Very important that obviously diet, growing your own food as much as you can is critical because you can control so much of what goes in your body and buying local and local farmers markets. It is expensive. There's no question about it. More expensive than we've become accustomed to in the main grocery stores, but that comes at a high cost and that cost is your health. And so that's, again, we get back to this county by county model of everybody trying to have a Patriot garden and growing their own food or as much of it as you can. And again, like I've talked so many times, if you're very limited on space, at least you can be growing things like uh, sprouts and greens and getting those sort of, and even herbs, which will give you high nutrient intake with very, very healthy and needed for your body. And the one thing I don't think we talk enough about that he hit on in the end, which I just really reinforce is exercise. And that is keeping your body moving. We are, tend to be a very sedentary people now. And I know that it's easy to supplement or in your mind supplement things like, well, I'm just going to go work in the garden instead of exercise. An intentional act of exercise is very important in the discipline of the mind and the body. And even if that's 30 minutes a day, and I, you know, I had a, when I trained martial arts, I had a fabulous um, master instructor who always used to say, if people would just spend 10 minutes a day stretching, they would find a an increase in their health of something like 60 or 70% is what the studies were showing, however that works out. 
But I would say definitely making sure that you're going through a stretching program and some sort of cardiovascular every day intentionally to really force that your body and your heart to exercise and move that blood around to purify the body, bring in more oxygen into the blood and really uh, increase that overall body health. So all of these things put together, we quickly find out that we really don't need a whole lot to do with medical. Obviously, it's nice to have a reference to medical when we need it, but we don't need to be dependent on the hospital program where doctors have not only become the purveyors of death, but they've also become the enforcers of many laws if you don't comply to what they say. So it's a very dangerous space we're in when we start dealing with hospitals in general. So anyway, that's it for tonight, and we'll be back, or I'll be back here for Fishers of Men. Thank you for being here. Keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never body evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. Keep those prayers up. Prayers for the strength of the soul, strength of the mind, strength of that warrior spirit. In the end, God will always win. But we are here in this time, in this place, for just such a time as this. We are at war. Walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Mission forward. Patriots, I will see you in a bit for Fishers of Men. Until then or until the next time, God bless and out for now. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward, by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man, and man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable and we believe they can do it again. Surely the opening vistas of space promise high costs and hardships, as well as high reward. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer, to rest, to wait. But this city of Houston, this state of Texas, This country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. This country was conquered by those who move forward, and so will space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. The energy the faith, the devotion, which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not 
what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. thousands of years to show its face. It has only one intent, to destroy God's light and to enslave. It has no scruples, it has no rules but one, to win at any cost. But we will never bow, for we are the remnant that will hold the line. This is war. We fight. We push, we climb, we never give in, we become the nightmare that evil didn't know could exist. We pray, we stand, we live by the words, in God we trust, we fear nothing, we are the light that can never be extinguished. We are patriots. We are the digital army that will help deliver God's wrath.